sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. You know, for white evangelicals, it's no mystery what the big ticket items are on a Christian political agenda. For a long time, they've been issues like abortion and also religious liberty and the incursion of LGBT rights and the, the dangers that that poses to the religious freedom of traditional religious institutions. These are not any new news for most of us. But for white evangelicals, the realities of a Christian agenda for black Christians is something we're much, much less familiar with. And we tend to think, well, of course, our issues are the right issues, and they're the only issues. So I've asked my friend and colleague, Timothy Golden, who teaches philosophy and is director of the Legal Studies Program at Walla Walla University, to discuss with us what a Christian political agenda looks like for the African-American church. Tim, welcome back to Freedom's Reign. Thank you very much for having me, Alan. I'm glad to be with you. And, you know, enlighten us a little bit. If, you know, I mean, last year was obviously 2020, tremendous focus on racial injustice issues. Are there some political initiatives dealing with racial injustice that are kind of uh, front and center for Christians within the African-American community? I think so. Two of them come to mind. One is called the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, and the other is called the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Both are at different stages in Congress. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act is pending now in the Senate, sponsored by Senator Patrick Leahy, and the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed the House of Representatives, has not made its way to the Senate yet, but we'll see what happens there. In any event, both of these are major legislative moves at the federal level that are designed to address some of the systemic problems with police brutality and with voter suppression specifically. So they're major legislative developments to watch out for, I think. So among black Christians, and is it fair to say that voting rights, the access to voting, is both historically and presently a big ticket item. I think so. I think it is fair to say that. I think that when we look at the history of the 15th Amendment, which was ratified at America's second founding, Reconstruction, was designed to protect the voting rights of newly freed slaves, but through a variety of machinations, the 15th Amendment remained unenforced and unenforceable for 95 years until 1965 when President Lyndon Johnson in August of that year signed the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, the 19th Amendment notwithstanding, which gave the right to vote to women, did not include black women and did not include black men. Certainly not if you lived in the Jim Crow South, right? So you have this long period of time where any meaningful sort of political organization on the part of African-Americans was prohibited. And it was the black church 
under the auspices of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and people like the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth and Dr. King and Ralph Abernathy and Andrew Young and a number of others came together and said, listen, this has to change. And so you have the famous march over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. The nerve center for that march was a small church in Selma, Alabama. Great march from Selma to Montgomery and the bludgeoning of John Lewis, of course, on Bloody Sunday in March of 1965 that brought the attention of the nation to voting rights and the need for that to happen. So I think historically the black church has been front and center as it related to voting rights and continues to be so today. So if, you know, and I guess the question I would ask our listeners is, do you care about the issues that your black Christian brothers and sisters care about? And if I thought my audience were predominantly black, I might say the same thing to them in terms of caring about the issues that your white Christian brothers and sisters care about. Um, but, uh, you know, my purpose here is is not to sit in judgment on anybody's politics, but that we understand one another better and, and the issues that we care about and understand that they're all coming from our Christian faith and values and our Christian experience, but that our experiences in America are different, aren't they? Yes, they sure are, Alan. And if anybody is wondering who's listening, I would just urge people to to realize that when people are able to vote without any sort of suppression or, you know, or being suppressed in any way, it's better for everyone, right? It's better. I mean, we want to participate in the electoral process. And the problem is that Despite the passage of time, we still have what I like to call a Dred Scott mentality when it comes to African-Americans. Dred Scott, of course, is the famous, infamous Supreme Court decision. Separate but equal. Well, no, that's actually Plessy versus Ferguson. Oh, that's Plessy. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Dred Scott was about 40 years prior to that having to do with the Fugitive Slave Act and Chief Justice Roger Taney argued that African-Americans had no rights at all under the Constitution. The Constitution was never intended to protect them, and it would be inconsistent to interpret it in such a way that it would protect African-Americans. And so we claim to have gotten past that, right, through the Reconstruction Amendments, several major congressional actions during Reconstruction, moving forward into the 20th century with the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act of 1964 that ended Jim Crow. But despite our attempts to get beyond it in the letter of the law, sadly, I think the spirit of the law is very much a Dred Scott spirit. I mean, one of the reasons why people thought the election protests were credible was because it was largely African-Americans and Latinos in Phoenix, Atlanta, Philadelphia, Detroit, and Milwaukee that put Joe Biden over the top in the last election. And what makes the allegations credible, uh, allegations of voter fraud credible to a lot of white Christians, were that a lot of the votes for President Biden came out of large black communities in major urban cities. And this is a real this is what I mean by the vestiges of Dred Scott. Dred Scott lives on, not so much in the letter of the law, 
but in the spirit, in the ethos of certain segments of our population, many of them Christian, who claim on one hand the banner of the bloodstained banner of Jesus, but on the other hand, carry Dred Scott close by in their hearts. It's quite disappointing. I'll say, and that's quite a profound insight into, you know, what's reading and understanding our recent experience politically. Um, the other bill you mentioned had to do with policing, the George Floyd bill. And obviously, police misconduct has been an enormous problem. Um, you know, the pushback that I hear in some circles is, well, there's lots of black-on-black violence in the inner cities, and the police are thrown into that mix. So, you know, it's a volatile kind of situation. Why is the focus on police misconduct? And I think that that critique misses the point of the underlying conditions that lead to black-on-black violence in the first place and the kind of structural racism and structural poverty. But from a Christian standpoint, in terms of, you know, looking at political agenda, how does that play into uh, you know, political issues? Is it raising the minimum wage? Is it the police conduct or something else? Well, I think it has to do, both of those things tend to be interrelated. Socioeconomic factors are deeply connected to, in any sort of structural analysis of racism and its, its sort of material stranglehold that it has on black communities. I think those things are relevant. But in perhaps more narrow terms, in terms of police misconduct, it's important to understand the history of policing in the United States. And it's important to understand that some of the first police officers in this country, certainly in the South, were former overseers who wealthy plantation or former wealthy plantation owners convinced that the newly freed black slaves were going to take all their jobs and they had to keep them under control. And so you have in the genesis of policing in this country very much a highly racialized, highly bigoted and profoundly racist institution that develops that we call policing that in many ways has evolved, thankfully. It's evolved far beyond that, but in many ways it has not evolved beyond it. And to me, any discussion of black on black crime is sort of a smokescreen, right? It's kind of a red herring. It sort of takes away from the issue of why it is that when a police officer confronts an unarmed black person, there is a need to shoot first and ask questions later. Whereas Dylan Roof, who kills nine black people in a church with an automatic weapon in South Carolina, gets arrested, is alive and well, and gets taken to Burger King. These are real problems, right? Along the same lines, Tim, we watched the folks who, whatever you want to say they did at the Capitol, right? They were there unlawfully, and they were escorted out by the authorities. They weren't busting anybody's heads. They weren't arresting them en masse. There was no, you know, I mean, if, if that were Black Lives Matter demonstration that was uh, you know, breaking down the barriers and entering the Capitol unlawfully, we would have expected an awful lot more blood. And I think, you know, this is the message I'm hearing from black preachers 
that white people are not really understanding why the black Christian community sees it this way. Well, that's right, Alan. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to juxtapose the kinds of things that you just did and see that there is a real bias toward African-Americans that is is so implicit, it borders on being explicit. It is so deeply ingrained in the way that police are interact with black people that it almost oozes out of the pores of policing. So what the George Floyd Policing Act does is it attempts to do things like end qualified immunity so police departments can be held civilly accountable. It attempts to initiate standards for policing, uh, nationwide standards for policing in terms of engagement protocols with suspects and that sort of thing. And it also prevents police officers from being a problem in one municipality as it relates to violence against citizens and just being able to move to another one, right? It's kind of like the problem with churches taking pastors and moving them around when they commit misconduct. Exactly. Well, Tim, we're out of time, but this has been, I hope, very helpful for our audience to understand that there are different Christian perspectives on, you know, what the priorities are for dealing with justice issues in our in our society. So I appreciate our guest today, Tim Golden, philosophy professor at Walla Walla University, being with us on Freedom's Ring. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me, Alan. And as we close, remember, friends, at Freedom's Ring, we don't just talk about religious freedom. We help workers suffering religious discrimination. Check out our legal resources page at churchstate.org, churchstate.org. And don't forget, friends, freedom is not free. Be informed. Get involved. Join the North American Religious Liberty Association producer of Freedom's Ring on the web at religiousliberty.info. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.